Oh, Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to call you our Father. And Lord, as we come to you as your little ones, as we come to you as your little children, oh Lord, we are reminded of how badly we need you. We need you if we are to persevere. We need you if we are to sustain. We need you if we are to overcome our sin. We need you if we are to live lives that matter and that count. We need you, Lord, if we are to amount to anything that matters for all of eternity. We need you. Oh, Father, on this morning, would you call some of your straying sheep home? Lord, on this morning, would you call your church to greater faithfulness in Lord? Would you give us responsibility for one another in your household as our Father? Move among your people. Leave us different and changed. We come to you together in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, happy Father's Day to everybody. One of the things that every child wants from their dad, and all of the dads out here know this, all of, the, all of you out here with a dad, which kind of encompasses all of us, knows this, that children long for time alone with their dad, right? Children long for time alone with their dad. If you were to do counseling, and you were to, to sit across the table from a brother or sister in the faith, and you were to try to help them through some difficulty or some struggle in their life, and the conversation moved to dad, and you were to ask them about their relationship with their dad, I can almost promise you from experience, you'd get one of two comments. On the one hand, they might say this to you. They might say, you know, my dad worked hard, and my dad was a disciplined man. And my dad did a lot of sacrificial things for our family. And he had a lot of things going on. And dad had a, a lot of plates to spin. But the one thing I can tell you about my dad is some way, somehow, he just always found time for us. He didn't find much time for himself, but he always managed to find time for me. He was always at my games, no matter what was going on at work. He was always available for a question or to go fishing or to do this or to do that, even though I knew at the time there was so much going on. And even now as, a, as an adult, I look back and I marvel at my dad because how in the world did he have so much time to spend with me with all of the other things that were going on? Or... You get the opposite. You get the person that said, you know what? Dad worked a lot, and that was about it. I didn't see him much. He provided well for us. He did a lot of things for our family. But I don't know that I ever heard him much say that he, he was proud of me or that he loved me. We always made plans to go fishing, but we never did. We always thought we would go to the Braves game together, but we never made it. Dad was just too busy. And when dad was home, it was like he really wasn't there. He was watching TV or playing golf or working outside in the building. He was just had so much going on, I guess. Dad just really just seemed angry. So we just kind of walked on eggshells around dad. You see, we measure our relationship with our fathers largely by the time that they have to spend with us. 
And I think the reason for that is, is that all of us, especially as we grow and as we become adults, what we eventually realize is, is that there is a lot of things, there are a lot of things competing for our dad's time. There are other siblings, perhaps. There's a, a job. There's a hobby. There's, there's uh, work. There's responsibilities in the community. There's the upkeep, uh, upkeep of the house. There's making sure that everyone has what they need so that they can be taken care of. And so we understand that there's a lot of things com that are competing for our father's time. And so when we realize that in the midst of this competition that our dad carved out time for us, that when our dad saw his relationship with his children, with his son, with me and just me as being so significant that he was going to make sure that he had time for me, it's one of the ways that we know that dad's love is just different. It's one of the ways that we know that, that this relationship that we have with our father is just different than any other relationship than there is on all of earth. And this morning, what I think we're going to see that Jesus teaches us is Jesus teaches us that our heavenly father doesn't just love us as a collection of people. You know, it's one thing if your dad says, I love my family. Oh, but it's something else when you get to experience that love individually, isn't it? When, that, when your dad is across from you, when your dad's in the truck with you, when your dad's doing something with you and he's loving you specifically, individually, and what I think we're going to find here from Christ this morning is that's how our Heavenly Father loves us. Our Heavenly Father doesn't just look down at the church and say, I love my church. I love all of this collection of people. He's not impersonal like that. No, our Heavenly Father loves every single little sheep in his flock. God the Father loves every single specific individual one under the sound of my voice this morning. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the days of your life. He knows what you love and what you hate. What is easy for you and what is difficult. You, God, individually loves you if you're in his family. So if you have your Bibles and you would turn with me, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Check that, Matthew chapter 18. My apologies. This week I've been looking ahead, getting ready for preaching in, in the coming weeks, and I guess my mind was already in 19. And when we come to our passage this morning, I want to kind of set you up for something that might catch you off guard. All right, so if you look in your Bibles, if you have an English Standard Version or an NIV or a New American Standard Version, uh, I'm preaching from the English Standard Version, it's going to skip from verse 10 to verse 12. Does anybody see that? That's kind of weird, huh? That's kind of different. Uh, it's, it's not that the Bible people don't know how to count, all right? That, that's not the situation. If you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you're likely going to see verse 11 here. So I don't want you to be caught off guard by that. The reason that that exists is that when we translate the Bible, and if you ever want to go more in depth, we do a Wednesday night class on how to interpret the Bible, and we talk about all of these things. But if you've ever been curious as to why that is, is when we interpret the Bible, when we trans not interpret, but when we translate the Bible, it's not written in English, obviously. It, 
It was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek in the original languages. And so when we're translating that into our language so that we're able to read that, what we want is we want the very oldest manuscripts that we can have, the ones that are closest to the times that which they were written. We don't have any of the originals uh, left, but we want as close to the original as we can get. Well, in the 1600s, when the King James Version was translated, we had what are very, very, very good manuscripts. Okay, and so what our Bibles are largely based on the translation work that those dear brothers, those faithful scholars put together. But since then, we have actually discovered something even in the 1940s called the Dead Sea Scrolls, manuscripts that are much, much, much older than those. And what we were able to do is we were able to take those older manuscripts and lay them beside what were already very good manuscripts and see that there were some things that maybe over the years had been added. You see, the way they translated the Bible, especially, or the way they transmitted the Bible, especially prior to the printing press, was by handwriting. And so a lot of times you would have somebody's notes in the margin of their Bible, if you will, that over time they would get confusion and they would work that into the text. So there might be here a cross reference to Luke chapter 19, verse 11 is basically verbatim from Luke chapter 19. There might have been a cross reference then that eventually got confused in the transmission and was worked into the text. But the very oldest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Matthew do not have verse 11 as being a part of the original text. And so that is why there's brackets or why there's, why it's placed down at the bottom. Okay, so the, the goal here is not unfaithfulness. It shouldn't be anything that scares us. In fact, it doesn't change the meaning of the text one iota. I just wanted to, to prepare you. So with that in mind, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's authoritative, God-breathed, inerrant word this morning? Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So when we come to verse 10, we're right in the midst of a discourse that Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 18 on life within the body of Christ. That is, in our relationship with other Christians. So Matthew 18 isn't so much looking beyond the church. It isn't so much looking at outreach and bringing in new disciples. Instead, Matthew 18's primary focus is, is how do we relate to one another within the church already? How do we relate to our fellow disciple? How do we relate to our, our fellow brother or sister? Because all of us know that until we get into glory, we're still struggling with some issues here, right? We're still struggling with some battles with sin. We're still struggling with some disunity with one another. Sometimes we offend one another and sometimes we anger one another and sometimes we hurt one another and sometimes we sin against one another. Sometimes, like in the life of the disciples, we have rivalries with one another and we want to know that we are greater in God's eyes than, than our brother or our sister is. 
And so Jesus takes time and he begins to speak this kind of truth into the life of his disciples. We know that already they are in the midst of a controversy among themselves, trying to discover, trying to figure out which one of them is the greatest of the disciples in Jesus's eyes. In other words, they're trying to seek out who is it in the kingdom of God that is of greatest value. And so Jesus, speaking into that context, looks at his disciples and he says, Do not despise one of my little ones. Do not despise one of my little ones. Little ones is a, a direct translation from verse 6. It's, it's the same phrase that he used in verse 6. And if you'll remember what we said there, this is not so much talking about literal children. Rather, it is talking about those that have come to Jesus humbly as a child. It is one of the little ones within the flock of God. So this can, in fact, refer to any brother or sister within the church. Any disciple of Christ is a little one that has come to Christ with the faith of a child. Child, anyone who has come to Christ in the humility of a child. And so he says to them, don't despise one of my little ones. Don't despise one of your brothers or one of your sisters. Don't despise someone within the church. Uh, one translation, the, the uh, Net Bible, I know, maybe some of the others, uses the word disdain. Don't disdain your brother. And the word that he's using there is a word that denotes value. So what he's telling his disciples is, is don't ever feel as though you are superior in any way to your brother. Never ever look down upon your brother or sister. Never ever look down upon any little one by which my kingdom is built as though you are inferior, you are superior and they are inferior. Never look down your nose a single time upon one of your brothers and sisters. I don't care if you've been on a hundred mission trips and they've been on none. I don't care if you've read all the way through the Bible 50 times and they've never read through the Bible at all. I don't care if you have the book of Romans memorized and they've never memorized John 3.16. I don't even care if they themselves are wayward and in sin. You have no right to look down your nose as though you are superior in any way to your brother or in Christ. Don't disdain your brother. Don't despise your brother. Don't look down upon your brother in Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, cross-bought sinners are not in a position to look down on other cross-bought sinners. Instead, cross-bought sinners are in a position of empathy with their brothers and sisters, a position of empathy with them as they battle with the flesh, as they battle against sin, as they battle against wickedness, as they train themselves for godliness, as they pursue Christ, and as they are beaten down by the world and struggling in the world, and then on a mountaintop the next day walking with Christ. Cross-bought sinners are not in a position of superiority, not in a position to look down upon them. Rather, we are in a position of empathy in which we can empathize with where they are, knowing that the only things that are good in our lives, the only things that are good that can be said about us are those things that Christ has made true himself, those things that Jesus has given to us. If we are holy, it is because Jesus has made us holy. If we are righteous, it is because Jesus has made us righteous. If we are walking with the Lord, it is because Jesus has given us the Spirit 
spirit by which we are now enabled to walk with the Lord. Nothing that is good about me, nothing that is good about you is because me of, or because of you. It is only because of the Lord Jesus. And so we are not in a position in which we can look down on another. You see, one of, the, one of the things that we have to learn is that because of what the cross has done, we are now called to cherish the church of God. Cherish the church of God. And I want you to understand what I mean when I say the church of God. I'm talking about not this building that we gather to every week. I'm talking about not the name Iron City Baptist Church. I'm talking about the individual people that make up this faith family. I'm talking about the, the individual brothers and sisters. I'm talking about the individual children, boys and girls. I'm talking about the individual teenagers. I'm talking about every single person that comes together under the, under the covenant of Iron City Baptist Church that I so deeply love. When I'm talking about the church, that's what I'm talking about that we have a responsibility to one another to cherish one another. We have a responsibility in the gospel before Christ Jesus himself to cherish each other in the gospel. Now what's difficult about that? Sometimes you just don't like me very much. And sometimes I don't like you very much. Sometimes we just have bad days. Sometimes we're just in a bad mood. Sometimes we're in the middle of sin. Sometimes we've drifted away from the Lord. Sometimes the whole world comes crashing down on us and we respond not with faith, but with anxiety. So we're grumpy and we're difficult and we're, we're, we want what we want. And it's hard, isn't it? But you know what I think Jesus is teaching his disciples? That if we will cherish the church, we will bring glory to the cross. If we will cherish the church, we will bring glory to the cross. That's what you and I have in common. What you and I have common is that every single one of us are of, are of great value in the kingdom of God. What you and I have in common is not our skin color and not our, not our socioeconomic class and not our history and not our family tree. What you and I have in common is something far greater than any of that. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the level ground found on his cross. And so as we cherish one another, even in our difficulties, even in our divisions, even in our frustrations, even when we bring offense, even when we bring pain, even when we bring difficulty, when we cherish one another, we bring glory to the cross. We bring glory to the cross. Brothers and sisters, whenever you feel tempted to despise your brother, whenever you feel tempted to disdain your brother, whenever you feel tempted to dislike your brother, Whenever you feel tempted to look down in superiority and judgment on your brother, I would ask you to remember the cross. Remember the price that was paid for you. And remember the same price was paid for them. Their sin is merely a, a picture of what you had to be delivered from and how you had to be transformed. Yeah, cherish one another and bring glory to the cross. Remember the price that was paid for all of us and then, then none of us can feel as though we are superior to the next. Cherish one another and bring glory to the cross. And so to explain with greater clarity the value of each little one within the kingdom of God, Jesus begins to tell the most beautiful parable, the most beautiful story. He talks about a shepherd and the shepherd has a flock of a hundred sheep. Now, this is not 
this is a substantial flock, but it is at the same time not, a, not a, an enormous flock. This is not a flock that all of those neighbors would have said, man, can you believe the size of this guy's flock? But it was still substantial nonetheless. The world wouldn't have considered it great, but what is obvious is that this shepherd considers it great. He said, oh, he's, he's got his flock of a hundred and he's doing roll call in my mind, you know, like Donner here, Blitzen here, you know, he's like Rudolph here. He's, he's going through the flock trying to figure out if all the crew is around, trying to see who's missing and make sure that all, all people are under his shepherdly care when all of a sudden he realizes that one of the guys has gotten away. One of these little ones has done what they seem so prone to do. He has strayed from the flock. And you know what a, a sheep can do to defend itself against a lion? That'd be nothing. You know how a sheep can defend itself against a wolf or against a thief? That'd be nothing. You can't bash something to death, right? <laughs> so we have a sheep and he's in grave danger. He has wandered away from the flock and the shepherd does not say, well, it's just one. I have 99 more. What sweat it? Why sweat it? Why put myself in danger? Why inconvenience myself and have to go through God only knows where, climb up whatever mountain and encounter, encounter whatever danger and potentially leave the other 99 there fending them for themselves? No, one sheep in this shepherd's flock is not an acceptable loss. One sheep is not an acceptable loss. And so the shepherd goes and he goes in pursuit of the straying sheep. He goes in pursuit of the wandering lamb, the wandering little one. And he goes wherever it takes him. And when he finds him, what does he do? Does he lash the sheep? Does he crush the sheep? Does he curse the sheep? Does he yell at the sheep? No, he rejoices over the little one that is found. He rejoices that he can bring the sheep safely back into the flock. He celebrates. He says, man, bring out the mariachi brand. Get the hummus platter going. It's time to throw a part. I'm in a pinata tonight. We've got the sheep together again, right? And there's a picture there for us. There's a picture there for us. That is the picture of our heavenly father with his church. That is a picture of our heavenly father with his little ones, with his children. One person, one child of God, one brother and sister in the faith is not an acceptable loss in the kingdom of God. You are not an acceptable loss in the kingdom of God. The person to your right, the person to your left, they are not an acceptable loss in the eyes of our Father, in the eyes of our shepherd. Oh, on this Father's Day, how my heart is challenged to be a greater dad by looking at my heavenly Father. Not one of us is an acceptable loss. And you know what he's teaching his disciples? So you need to go and emulate his character. You need to go and realize that not one of you is an acceptable loss. Not one of you is it okay if you stray away. Not one of you is it okay if they fall away. No, pursue your brother. Emulate the character of your father. Realize the value of every single little one within the kingdom of God and go after them with all of the ferocity of a shepherd in pursuit of his lost lamb. And when you find them, rejoice. I think there's 
two balancers that we find in emulating the character of God that if we look within the story and we pay close attention to what Jesus is saying, it teaches us in our pursuit of our brother and in our coming together and how we can love one another at the center of what he's talking about right here this morning is how we love one another, which is our value of emphasis this year. So I think there's these, these two balancers that we need to notice, and it can't be one and not the other. That's why I'm calling them balancers. You have to have them both, okay? The first thing I think we see is we see the importance and necessity of holiness. We see the importance and necessity of holiness. So the sheep has strayed. The sheep has wandered. What's the picture there? The picture there is of a Christian. Not an unchristian, a non-Christian, not an unbeliever, but a Christian, a brother or sister, one within the church who has fallen into sin. The picture there is the brother or the sister that has wandered away from the church, has strayed away from his brothers and sisters, strayed away from his faith family, strayed away from the security of the flock, strayed away from the guidance of the shepherd and his under-shepherds, strayed away from the authority of God's word, the authority of the shepherd to speak into their lives, one who has fallen away. So he's painting for us the picture of Go after them. Does Jesus here say, you know what? If they're straying, that's really kind of what they want to do. They're their own person. You need to mind your own business. Let them do their thing. Does Jesus here, is, is the picture here, you know what? Because you love them, you really should make sure you never, ever, ever tell them they're doing anything wrong. Is Jesus here saying, look, look, just overlook the offenses of your brother. Overlook the, the, the way he has fallen out of the flock. Overlook it and so not bring offense into his life. No, brothers and sisters, that is anti-gospel. That is anti-gospel. For the gospel takes seriously holiness. And the gospel takes seriously sinfulness. And the gospel is not, Jesus did not come so that the Father might overlook our sin. Jesus came that the Father might overcome our sin. That, G, that the Father may forgive us of our sins and deliver us from slavery to our sins. And let us walk in power and newness of life as we saw in the baptism demonstrated. It is anti-gospel to merely overlook that which will destroy somebody in the name of love because that is not love at all. It is not loving to allow someone to continue on a path that you know will ultimately destroy their lives with catastrophic consequences and to stand idly by. That is not the definition of grace. That is not the definition of mercy. That is not the definition of, of love. That is the definition of lazy wickedness. Lazy wickedness. The picture that Jesus paints for us, the picture he is painting for his disciples is that we are to go in pursuit of one another as the Father goes in pursuit of his church. In fact, I think you could take it and you could connect those two ideas to say that what Jesus is saying is that you are the arm, you are the means by which God very often goes in pursuit of his wayward flock. That God very often goes in pursuit of his wayward flock through the work of his flock through the work of his church, through the work of his people, that he calls them back through one another, through their fellow disciples. I think one of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest diversions of the gospel, uh, perversions of the gospel that we find in good churches, and I consider us a good church, not a perfect church, but a good church. I think one of 
the greatest perversions of the gospel that we find in good churches is the excusability of sin in the name of grace. The excusability of sin in the name of kindness. The excusability of sin in the name of mercy. Brothers and sisters, holiness matters to a holy God. Holiness matters to a holy God. Jesus has literally just said in verses seven through nine, if your eye causes you to sin, rip it out. If your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. If your leg causes you to sin, lop it off. It is better to go into the glory of God with one arm, one eye, and one leg than to go into hell with completely embodied. Holiness matters in the kingdom of God. And we must take responsibility for one another's holiness. That's the call. Is that your holiness is not just on you, it's on me too. Your holiness is not just, your responsibility and holiness is not just for your, bro, not just for your family, not just for you. It is for your brothers and sisters. It is as you look around for one another that has entered into covenant with each other. This is what it means to love one another, to take responsibility for your brother's well-being, to take responsibility for your brother's standing before God, to take responsibility for the fact that they are to bring God delight with their lives. The question I have, the question that I have is this. Are you willing to be known? Are you willing to be known? And are you willing to put in the hard work to know others? See, here's the dream that I have for our church. The dream that I have for our church is that we would be a group of friends that come together. Not, not, not casual attenders that we sit beside every week. N not just people that we, we smile and kind of give that, that faith. Yeah, everything's great, man. How about you saying and then go about our life and just live? No, the, the, the dream that I have about our church is that we would be friends with each other and that we would know one another's vulnerabilities and one another's difficulties and one another's struggles and one another's weaknesses. That we would know one another's battles with sin. That we would know if Father's Day is an encouraging day or a hard day for one another. That we would know if Mother's Day is a hard day or an encouraging day for one another. That we would know where the enemy has potential strongholds in one another's lives. Where we would know where we battle the flesh with each other so that we can speak truth and life into one another. You know what? You can't speak holiness into the life of a casual acquaintance. That has to be a friend. That has to be a friend. If you're just a casual acquaintance, you, you have no right, no authority to speak into somebody's life because they, you don't even know that they know you. Oh, but if it's a friend, if it's somebody that you know would take care of your wife if you were to die, if it's somebody that you know would look after your kids if you stepped into eternity young, if it's somebody that you know was gonna be there for you on your hardest day and they have a word for you, you know where they stand. You know their position of grace. You know their position of love. And they're speaking to you saying, come back to the flock. So I ask you, are you willing to be known? Let me tell you, I love you way too much to let you believe that you can come here for one hour a week and let us know who you are. We can't. I love you way too much to let you believe that you are getting everything that God intends for his church if you simply come for worship and leave as soon as it's over and that's it. The church has been a gift of grace from God Almighty to his people. 
Come and be known. Be known to one another. Be friends with one another. Go to eat with one another. Go on vacation with each other. Invite one another to your houses. If you're going to know your brother, you're going to have to put some work in. You're going to have to put some work in. More work than, than you have to put in with the relationships in, at your job. More work than people at the ball field. More work than all of that. I'll, I'll give you that. It is work. But let me tell you, it is life-giving work. It is life-giving work. When you have somebody in your life that before you jump and plunge off the chasm of sin and wickedness, they can call you back to the flock much sooner than that, brother. I think you're straying. Brother, I, you don't seem like things are well with you anymore. Brother, are you okay? Well, let's pray together. Are, are you struggling with pornography? Tell me about it. That's the kind of known I'm talking about. Are you willing to be known with your sin? Are you willing to let people know that you battle pornography? Are you willing to let people know that you battle with gossip and let people know that you battle with being judgmental? Are you willing to let people know that you battle with lust? Are you let, willing to let people know that, that you battle with lying? Let's stop just smiling and get to be friends with each other that can give life to one another. Don't you dream about being a part of something like that? Isn't that a worthy dream, church? Isn't that worth pursuing? Because that is something that's going to sustain you and you're still going to be in this seat 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago if the Lord tarries his coming and gives you breath in your lungs. That's how the flock is to sustain in holiness. That's how the flock is to go in pursuit of godliness and righteousness. It is by being in it together. A part of it together. But there's a second balancer, right? Can't just have holiness. Can't just have a passion for holiness. As we go in pursuit of holiness, how do we go? In grace and kindness. In grace and kindness, right? It's a beautiful picture what he says here. He says, he, he's going, and you have this shepherd, and he's running after, and, he, and in my mind, it doesn't say, but in my mind, he runs up to the sheep, and if you'd have been there that day, you think, this cat is crazy, because he just goes, and like, picks the sheep up, and he's like, I love my sheep. Right? He restores it back into the fold. As quickly as he ran away, he is brought right back in with celebration, and love, and passion, and joy. Man, they're hitting pinatas. They're eating the cows, not the lambs, right? They're having a party that night. Because the shepherd is one of grace. He's one of forgiveness. He's one of mercy. The picture that I have in my mind as I thought about this, discipline within the church, hard conversations within the church, the pursuit of holiness within the church, is the picture of when you discipline your child and you go into your room and you cry about it. You bring discipline, you bring pain into the life of your child and you do that, why? Because you love your child. Because you don't want them to fall into wickedness. Because you don't want their life to come to a catastrophic end. Because you want them to understand the severity and the gravity of their sin. But then you go into your room and you weep because you just did it. Why? Because you love your child. It brings pain into your life to bring any degree of pain into their life, even when it is for their benefit, even when it is for their good. Brothers and sisters, church discipline cannot be done from a spirit of vengeance. It must always be done through tears and through weeping and through sorrow and through pain. See, this is the shape of discipleship in the church. 
The shape of discipleship in the church is to run after holiness with everything that you've got and, and, and to bring other people in this pursuit of holiness with, it, with you. But at the very same time, it is to look to them and say, I give you grace again today. I am patient with you again today. I am merciful with you again today. I love you. Let's do this. Okay, forgiven. Let's move forward. Forgiven. Let's move forward. And over and again, we extend to them forgiveness and grace and mercy. And we propel forward in the cause of the gospel. Listen, if, there, if we are a church that only knows grace and no holiness, we will bring reproach upon the gospel because we will live as, as sinful, wicked, worldly people. But if we know only holiness and no grace, then eventually we will kill ourselves from within because at some point, every single one of us is gonna stare down the barrel of that gun. It takes both. It takes both. It takes a passion for holiness and a passion of grace coming together at the same time. Iron City Baptist Church, let's pursue both together. Let's pursue both together. Brothers and sisters, as we love one another, let's do it with, with a passion for holiness and with grace, mercy, and gentleness too. Let's go after this thing, pursuing both. We can't just have grace. We can't just have holiness. The gospel necessitates them both. I think he gives his uh, disciples a vision of why they're doing this. Why do, you, why do you go out and pursue one another this way? Why do you go out and subject yourself to such difficult conversations like this? Why do you keep doing this day after day? Why don't you just, man, part with the church, not bring that kind of hardship into your life, not bring that kind of difficult conversations into your life? Why don't you just part with one another, go about your merry ways, then come into glory? You know what he says? He says, I'm asking you to live this way with one another so that you might rejoice. So that you might rejoice. Does this not bring into your mind the, the Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son? Doesn't this bring that into your mind? You have the son who looks at his dad and says, Dad, just give me what I'm owed right now. Give me my inheritance right now. Give me all that I'm entitled right now. And he goes out into the world and he lives in the throes of rebellion until ultimately he's left bankrupt and, he, and longing for the slot that the pigs eat. He says, oh, but the servants in my father's house live better than this. I'll just go to my dad and say, Dad, you don't have to treat me like a son. Dad, you don't have to pretend as though these things never happened. Just let me come into your house as an indentured servant. Let me just eat with the servants and live with the servants. But what does it tell us happened? The dad was looking and when it, the son was a long way off. The dad screams out, slaughter the fattened calf. And he runs and he throws a ring on his son and a robe around him and he hugs him and he embraces and he weeps. And he restores his son into his family, not as a servant, not as a slave, but as a beloved son. You know what? There are prodigals in here this morning. I'm certain there are prodigals here this morning. There are some of you that you're a college student and you thought that you were going to go and you were going to have the college experience. And so you've been to parties that 15-year-old that you would have never dreamed of. You've slept with people that, that you know for a fact don't care anything about you. You've, you've done things and been places and said things and become someone that you almost don't even recognize. 
Can I tell you something this morning? Come back and the Father will rejoice. God will rejoice over your return. I don't care who you've slept with. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've drank. I don't care where you've went. I don't care the party. I don't care the apartment. I don't care the story. Come back and the Father will rejoice over you. He is waiting with arms wide open saying, come back my daughter. Come back my son. Come back into the fold. There are teenagers here. And you just wanted five minutes, for five minutes to think that you belong to something. You just wanted for five minutes to believe that you were a big deal. You just wanted for five minutes to feel like you were accepted by your peers. And you did things that you can't even imagine. You did things that you, you can't even find the words to say them out loud. And you pretend like it's not there. And you pretend like it's not real. And you pretend like you're not empty. But the truth is, is this morning, you don't even recognize yourself. I don't care where you've been. I don't care who you've slept with. I don't care what you've looked at on your computer screen. I don't care what you've said to your mom. I don't care what you did to your friend or what your friend did to you. I don't care what you did so that somebody else would like you or love you or want, or want to be with you. Come back this morning. Come back this morning. Come back to the fold of God and God will not rebuff you. God will not turn you around. No, God will rejoice over your return. There are dads here with a pornography addiction. There are moms here in the midst of an affair. There are some of you right now in the throes of rebellion, eating the slop of the world, and you think I'm too far gone. Brothers and sisters, if you were under the sound of my voice, and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, come back and the Father will rejoice. The Father will rejoice. Don't continue in your misery any longer. Don't continue in your rebellion a day longer. Come back and the Father will rejoice. And can I tell you something else? Under the authority of the Word of God, your church family will rejoice too. Your church family will, rejo will rejoice. I will rejoice. And Aaron and Zach and John and, and Alan and Tom, we will rejoice as your pastors. Your Sunday school teachers will rejoice. Your brothers and sisters, bring them to the altar with you. We will rejoice with you. There's something funny about verse 13 though, isn't there? There's something funny there. I think again, it reminds us of the story of the prodigal son. He says, there's more rejoicing over the one that is found than over the 99 that never left. And if you're like me, the Pharisee inside of me says, are you kidding me? Here I am in the church. Here I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing, reading what I'm supposed to be reading, going where I'm supposed to be going, and God loves that guy more? You're like me, you're thinking, but didn't the 99 earn a little more love? Didn't they deserve it a bit more? I think, first of all, he is slashing, again, any definition of greatness that we come up with our own minds, saying being humble like a child. But I think the greater picture is, is Jesus is teaching his disciples that the father loves every single child this much, this much. 
Every single individual a part of the kingdom of God, every single individual a part of the church of God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, washed by the blood of the cross, every single one is loved like this by the Father. In fact, this story is the story of all of us, for all of us have wondered, and all of us have strayed, and all of us have fallen away, and all of us have found ourselves in seasons of rebellion and sin, And what did the Father do upon our repentance? He rejoiced and he welcomed us back into his church. He rejoiced and welcomed us back into his fold, welcomed us back into his flock. Every single one of you, every individual under the sound of my voice, regardless of your history, regardless of your unfaithfulness, Regardless of your neglect of God, the Father himself, if you are his child, he loves you like this. You might run like Adam did, and you might try to hide in your sin under the tree. You might run like Jonah did and get in the boat and go as far away from God as you can possibly get. You might run like Lot did and go right into the heart of Sodom and pitch your tent there. Or, but God will not give up on you. God will not turn away from you. If he has to find you under the tree, if he has to pursue you in the boat, if he has to run right into the middle of Sodom itself, God will pursue his children. God will call his children back to the flock because God loves every single one. Brothers and sisters, turn back to the flock. Turn back to the flock. Jesus says it is not the will of God that any of his flock should perish. Not a single little one. That you have such value in the eyes of God that he says that angels in heaven are called to account before God where he can tell you, tell them face to face of what great value you play in his kingdom so that they might go and protect you and minister to you and sustain you. And you know what can stop the will of God? It's the will of God that you not perish. It's the will of God that you not fall away. It's the will of God that he pursues you until you are back in the flock. And brothers and sisters, do you know what can stop the will of God? Nothing, nothing can stop the will of God. In Job chapter 42, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Not one thing can stop the will of God. Not one thing can stop God from sustaining you in this life if you are his child. Not one thing. So brothers and sisters, hold fast to one another. Hold fast to one another. Take one another's holiness seriously. Take one another's walk with God seriously. Take one another's righteousness seriously. Take take their struggles seriously. Take their burdens seriously. Not a single one is to fall away. Hold fast to your brothers and sisters. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so much better to me than I could ever dream of or ever imagine. If I myself was to write a story of the greatest God that I could ever imagine, I would not even begin to fathom a God as great as you. Lord, thank you.